Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for Scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's Word and apply His message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today, Sharon presents Part 1 of the Gospel of Luke, Chapter 16. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Welcome tonight, everybody, for our study of Luke chapter 16. Now, we have been working our way through parables of Jesus, and it's been really fun as we put our parable hats on. Last week, we had the lost and the found parables, God's incredible, incredulous, bountiful mercy, so prodigal, so extreme, and the ratio with which he cares for us. He not only wants to find us, but he goes out actively and seeks and saves what is lost. So that one of 100 sheep, he finds it. That one of the one of the 10 coins that has lost its image, divine image of God, he finds it. The lost son, one to one, he cares that intentionally and that individually about each and every son and daughter he has, that he will seek and save the lost. And we have to remember that in scripture, there were no chapter divisions. Publishers do that. That came later. So we could do Bible study, but that was not the original. (laughs) The two parables we're looking at tonight are both eschatological parables. That's a big fancy word, but it comes from the Greek, estikos, that means last, and ology, the study of. So it's the study of the last things. So we're looking beyond this life and to the next, eschatology, relating to death, to judgment, to the final destiny of the soul of humankind. So anytime there's a parable, we need historical context or we won't understand it. The people of the day understood it. We don't. So we're going to just do a little bit of historical context. You know who the Greeks were ruling the world. Alexander the Great, they were in charge. Then they were taken over by Rome. And then ancient Jerusalem is in Israel. But they were ruled first by Greece and then by Rome. So they contain both cultures. And they're Hebrew. They're, they're Jews. And so they have all three of those cultures. So their language was the Hebrew language. And Jesus, a dialect of Hebrew is Aramaic. He spoke Aramaic. But Bible scholars tell us that the three original languages, the books, different books of the Bible, were written in either Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek. And we know that coins at the time, like Alexander the Great, was the big ruler, but the language on the coin was written in Aramaic. So we see like this culture of Greece coming into Israel, and eventually they adopt the Greek language. Because the Greek language was superior in expressing philosophy, and those type of concepts. There just weren't words for it in the Hebrew. So ancient Jerusalem becomes Hellenized, which means it becomes Greekized, Helen. And so did Egypt. They take over Egypt also. There was a phenomenal library in Alexandria, Egypt. They, they boasted of this incredible library. They really uh, loved this library. The Greek king who was ruling, the Greek king of Egypt called Ptolemy II, asked 72 Jewish scholars to translate the Jewish Torah from the biblical Hebrew language into Greek because he wanted a copy of it in his library in Alexandria, Egypt. And so six scholars were taken from each of the 12 tribes, making 72 scholars. And those scholars, Philo of Alexandria, the historian tells us that, And the Library of Alexandria was one of the largest and most prestigious libraries of the ancient world. And Ptolemy wanted that Hebrew Torah translated into Greek so they could read it, what those Hebrews were always reading all the time. 
So King Ptolemy gathered 72 Jewish elders, six from each of the 12 tribes. He placed them into 72 individual chambers separately, separated all 72 of them, and he didn't tell them why he was summoning them to come. He entered into each of the 72 rooms and told the scribe, write for me the Torah of Moshe, your teacher. My memory. That's how the scribes always did it. This was a culture of memorization. And so, but the 72, and, and then he compared the accounts. God put it, this is in the tactate, God put it in the heart of each Jewish scribe to translate identically as all the others did. So when he compared all 72 copies, they were all identically alike. King Ptolemy found that each of the 72 translations was exactly the same as the other. Even in places where the sages intentionally had altered the literal translation, the results were still identical, and this constituted what they called an open miracle. And they had public sanctification of God's name, the Hebrew God's name. So, those were translated. The five books of the Torah, Moses' books, the Hebrew Torah, becomes now translated into Greek, and it's called the Pentateuch, five books in Greek. So the five Hebrew scrolls get translated. That is in the mid-third century before Christ. That was Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now they're in Greek. The remaining texts of the Bible were translated in the second century before Christ, and they were considered the primary Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. And maybe you've heard of the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Bible, the first one, earliest translation of the Greek of the Hebrew scriptures. And at the time of Augustine of Hippo, and he was born in 354 AD, the Greek translation of the Jewish scriptures took on the Latin term Septuaginta, and the Romans used LXX, which means 70 in Roman numerals, because there were 72 scholars, they just shortened it to the 70, and that was the abbreviation for the Septuagint. So you might see this in books, LXX. In 146 years before Christ, the Romans took over the Greek city of Corinth, and the Roman Empire began. And it wasn't until 382 AD that St. Jerome was commissioned by Pope Damasus I to translate that Greek Septuagint into Latin, and it was called the Vulgate. So until 382, the Bible was always in Greek. Now there's a Latin copy. It's in the late 4th century that the Latin Vulgate was translated by Jerome. And Jerome is the saint. He was a Catholic priest. And he said, ignorance of scripture is ignorance of Christ. If you want to know Christ, you got to know scripture because it's his word. Father Jerome is recognized as a saint and doctored in the Catholic church. And his scripture commentaries are amazing because think about it. He took line by line by individual line in an exegesis to make it be from Greek to Latin. So he studied it so carefully and he wrote in the margins about what he thought each verse meant. So his, his commentaries are quite amazing. So we have these three languages in Jesus's culture, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. And all three languages play a, a very important part in the ancient world. And that is why Pilate, when he nailed Jesus to the cross, he wanted it inscribed in all three languages, King of the Jews, in Hebrew, in Latin, and in Greek, John 19. So the Greeks had Hellenized the world. Now the Romans move in and they are going to Romanize the world. They spoke Latin, so they Latinized the world. And everything was changing for the Jews. 
they just gotten Hellenized and now they're being Romanized and everything is changing. And we are aware of how fast our culture is changing right now with all the technology and, oh, we just can't keep up. And we, and we say, oh, well, the, the culture's changing. That's how they felt. With Roman occupation of their Greek world, they felt that their world was changing really fast. There were always soldiers around, Roman soldiers, and they just wanted to be a Hebrew nation again without all these Roman influences. And there were Roman soldiers everywhere, practicing their battle moves. They were there everywhere on the streets. They just lined. Not only were there Roman soldiers, there were Roman taxes to be paid. And you know how burdened you feel about your taxes. You get your paycheck and you look at it and you see how much we're taking out for taxes. And you're like, ah, uh, you know, that's how they felt. In biblical times, they felt a very, very heavy tax burden as well. Taxes were imposed by Roman and Jewish authorities. They were exploitative and burdensome for the people, especially the small tenant farmer. They got hit the worst. And we're talking today about the shrewd manager. So I just want you to understand the world he's living in. There are very high tariffs on olives for olive oil. That's one of the main things they needed. And that land is more expensive because those trees grow for hundreds of years. So to get a parcel of land with olive trees on it is more expensive than wheat because wheat is planted year after year, maybe twice a year, winter wheat, spring wheat. So olives were a higher tariff. Wheat has a high tariff, a high tax on it. Grapes for wine have a very high tariff on them. Again, grapevines go for many years. So they had olives for oil, wheat for bread, grapes, for wine. And these were some of the richest treasures of the promised land. Now think about that because we still have grapes for wine, wheat for bread, and olives for oil, for the chrism oil. It's very sacramental. All of those are the richest treasures of the promised land. And they're still the richest treasures of our church today to help us get back to the promised land. The atmosphere of violence and social injustice leading to poverty was so great, especially after the death of Herod the Great in the fourth century before Christ. So right when he's a baby, Palestine is very unstable politically. So it's at this time that revolutionary groups and discontent groups start forming. And one that we know of are the Zealots. So you've heard about the Zealots in the Bible. They're first talked about in 2 Maccabees. That's a book that the Protestants removed. It's a mistake because it's a very important part of the Jewish history. The Greeks have taken over the temple. They've put a statue of Zeus in the temple and are making them worship there. And Zealots rise up. Zealots for the law of Moses. A Zealot was a member of an ancient Jewish sect aiming at a world Jewish theocracy and resisting Rome until 70 A.D. Zealous were fanatical, uncompromising in pursuit of religious, political, and other ideals. And we know that Jesus chose a zealot as one of his very own apostles. In Luke chapter 6, we're told about Simon, who was called the zealot. Jesus chose him. Now, the people in Jesus' day were getting taxed to death. And they were asked to pay a half-shekel temple tax, each person a half-shekel temple tax. And you might remember the obscure story in Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus is paying the temple tax himself. The tax collectors come to Capernaum, and they're collecting the half-shekel temple tax. They go up to Peter, and they say, does your teacher pay the tax? And Peter said, yes. And when he came home, Jesus spoke to him, saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tribute? From their own sons or from others? Of what he said, from others, Jesus said to him. Then the sons are free. Jesus is saying, you're a son of God. You're a beloved son of God. You're free. Give to Caesar what Caesar's. That's not who's your father. However, not to offend, go to the sea, cast a hook, Peter, take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you're going to find a shekel in there. 
take that and give it to them, the tax collector, a half shekel for you and a half shekel for me. So he paid his temple tax and he paid Peter's temple tax by finding that coin in the fish. Isn't that a, you remember that story? It's obscure. We are most free when we give to Caesars what's Caesars, but give to God all the rest, which is our whole image. He is imprinted on us and give him everything else, the, the Shema prayer to give him all your heart, all your soul, all your might. And in the New Testament, Jesus adds all your mind. Now, the Roman government is being very tough on the people and imposing tremendous tax burdens. So on top of the temple tax, they have to pay the Roman governmental taxes as well. And there are tax collectors. They're called publicans, and we're going to get some parables about them in a few chapters up the road. But they were known for great corruption. They were disliked greatly by other Jews. You'll hear some stories about tax collectors. The one thing about the Romans... All roads lead to Rome because the Romans were excellent at building roads. This changed the world at this time. And because of the construction of Roman roads, the gospel is going to travel fast, but it's also much easier to transport a variety of goods, things that they would grow, things that they would harvest from the land, the seven species of the Holy Land. And they could seek more profitable markets elsewhere by exporting. New trade routes were opening up. Nations could intermingle. People could travel from one country to the other, from one region to the other. But also because of that, the government imposed export taxes, also known as tariffs or duties, on products produced in the Holy Land but sold to other countries. We know they were selling the salted fish in Magdala. They were exporting oil, olive oil. They were known for that. Export of taxes raised money for the government, the Roman government, and helped them control what was coming in and out of the country. So some of these trade routes were passing right through Palestine at the time. And new wealth was centered in trade and commerce. And an emergence of wealth in the middle class was possible. A lot of new profits and a lot of new possibilities. But who it was really hurting was the peasant farmers. They were getting squeezed out to nothing, no existence. They had huge competition from these great large landowners that bought up all the land. The heavy taxes were levied to support their bureaucracy. And land ownership became concentrated in the hands of a few rich fat cat landowners. And often they were absentee landowners, which means they lived nowhere around. And so they would employ a manager or a steward to manage their property and collect the profits. In the time of Jesus, several large farms had grown up around the Palestine area and they were restricted the livelihood of the ordinary peasants. We hear parables about the workers and the day wage and they, they, they worked for almost nothing. They were so poor and the farmers were suffering from this heavy taxation on their harvest. So small farmers, peasant laborers were suffering great poverty, extortion and unfair working conditions and pay at the time of Jesus. So these two parables are unique only to St. Luke, the crafty steward, it's also called the dishonest steward or the dishonest manager sometimes, and the rich man in Lazarus that we're going to look at today. So let's start with the parable of the shrewd manager. In a nutshell, a steward who is about to be fired, so he curries favor with his master's debtors by remitting some of their debts in hopes to later be rewarded with housing from them. That's a one-sentence sum up, but there's way more as you discussed. The primary audience is his disciples in this parable. He said this to the disciples, but there aren't chapter divisions. The secondary audience is the Pharisees and the scribes. They're still listening. They were within earshot because they scoff at the end of this story. They're so disgusted, they scoff at it. They were the primary audience last week for the tale of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost sons. 
This week, they are the secondary audience, but they are listening, and they are listening with great disdain. Okay, here's the story. He, Jesus, also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a steward, and charges were brought to the rich man that this man, his steward, was wasting his goods. Now, it doesn't say he was stealing. It says he was wasting or mismanaging, some translations say. He's mismanaging. Well, we all know in the business world, some managers are just better than others, right? Not everyone is as gifted as being a manager. This guy is not managing well. In this day and age, people of great wealth use stewards or managers, these large landowners. We know that rich Abraham had a steward. His name was Eleazar of Damascus. A steward was responsible to maximize God's blessings for his master. Eliezer was entrusted to go find a wife for Isaac. Remember that? He found Rebecca at the well. He will maximize not only Abram's wealth, but Abram's children by finding a wife for Isaac. But wealthy men had stewards to help them maximize their wealth. We see that Joseph in the Old Testament, he became the viceroy of Egypt, and he will have a steward at the door of his household. Wealthy Joseph will have a steward to manage his wealth. In the dictionary, the definition for steward is a man employed in great families to manage the domestic concerns, superintend the other servants, collect the rents or incomes, and keep the accounts. So he'll also do the books. Now, the wealthy master landowner had a steward, and that steward was wasting his goods. And the steward was mismanaging the goods of the master. And so the master called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your stewardship. For you can no longer be steward. Mm. If you waste the goods of the master, you are removed from his property in that time. If you squander the goods of the master, you are removed from his household. Squandering the master's goods. We just heard last week with no chapter divisions about the squandering of the father's goods. He took the inheritance, the younger son squandered all the inheritance that the father had gifted him with. He wanted it before the father died. Then he squandered it all. Now Jesus is speaking to his very own disciples, his very own followers, but within earshot of the Pharisees. Are there any known disciples who he's talking to who squandered or mismanaged what the master entrusted to them? One of his very own disciples who would squander everything and would turn from being a son of the light to a son of the dark. Can you think of anyone? Which one? Yes, Judas, the Judas kiss, Judas. Judas was the son of the light, one of the 12, but by the end of the story, he's the son of the dark. Satan enters into him. He allows it. Judas will squander all that his master had entrusted him with. And it began quite early in his ministry, as early as John chapter 6, when they were all walking away after the, the bread of life discourse. All the disciples withdrew. They were not walking with him anymore. But Peter said, Lord, to whom can we go? Jesus answered, he said, did I myself not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? Because Jesus can read hearts. He knew it way back then. Jesus meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. You'll remember in John 12, when Mary of Bethany took a pound of very costly nard and anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped it with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. And who was it? Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was intending to betray Jesus said, why was this perfume sold and not given the 300 denarii to the poor? Now he said this, John knows his heart too. Now he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. He's dishonest. And he had the money box and he used to pilfer what was in it. 
So Judas was a dishonest steward of the ministry's money. At the Last Supper, Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me. And they were all, is it I, Lord? Is it I? Is it I? The one to whom I shall dip this morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took the bread and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And the morsel, after the morsel, Satan entered into Judas. Therefore, Judas said to him, what you do, do so quickly. No, that none of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this. For some were supposing that Judas had the money box, but Jesus was saying to him, go buy things we need for the feast or give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he, Judas, went out immediately and it was night. No longer is he son of the light, but he's going out into the dark. John always uses the black of night for the, the dichotomy. Judas goes from being a son of the light to a son of the dark. So this master has called in this steward and he called him in and said, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your stewardship. You can no longer be steward. And the steward said to himself, well, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the stewardship away from me, what am I going to do? I mean, I'm, I'm getting canned here. I'm getting fired. What, what am I going to do? I got I to get something lined up. He says, I'm not strong enough to dig. Now that is a very honest thing. A day's work. It's a very meager peasant laborer's wage that would come from hard manual labor. He didn't want to do that. I can't do that. And I'm too ashamed to beg. So he's too proud. I'm not going to stand out there with a cup and beg from people. I, 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 no. What should I do? Ah, I have decided what I will do. I suppose he went and prayed it over. Went and prayed about it, made a silent retreat or something, right? Discerned. I have decided what I will do so that the people may receive me into their houses when I'm put out of my stewardship. He's getting canned. But before he's completely fired, he has executed a shrewd and careful calculated plan for his future. He is planning for the near future reality of being let go, being fired as a steward. What was his plan? How is he possibly going to survive in this terrible economy I just told you about? By forgiving the debts of others. Hmm. Partially. He's going to partially forgive the debts of others, and that's how he's going to survive. Now, we too spiritually survive when we forgive the debts of others. Forgiving debts also ensures for us a place to abide for all eternity, a home in heaven, one of the rooms of the Father's mansion in his household, when we forgive our debtors. It's the last thing Jesus told us to do in Luke's gospel. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. It's the last thing Stephen the martyr said before he was martyred. He knelt down, cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. A recapitulation of Jesus in the first martyr of Jesus. And in the Our Father, Luke told us, forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Jesus told them, pray this every single day. Forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Matthew says, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. If you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Pretty clear. When they were talking about forgiveness, Peter came up one day and asked Jesus, Lord, how often shall I forgive my brother that has sinned against me? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times. But 70 times 7 times, 490 times a day if you need to, forgive him. Peter thought he had it all figured out with perfect number 7. So the shrewd manager, the shrewd steward, by forgiving debt, will bring himself into good standing with his master's debtors. He's very shrewd. 
He's sharp. He's acute. He's intelligent, clever, alert, canny, observant, discriminating, crafty, wise, and farsighted. Thinking of his future. The steward's going to ingratiate himself. Do you know what that means? To ingratiate is to establish oneself in the favor or good graces of someone, especially by deliberate effort. He will ingratiate himself. He forgives a partial debt, and he will ingratiate himself to the master's debtors. They will owe him something back. Was he losing more money for the master by doing this? Because he's already been charged with mismanagement, and he's almost out the door. Perhaps he was giving away his own commission because he's the middleman and he gets a cut. He was getting the landlord's renters to pay up, even if it was a discounted payment. They're paying their bills. They're paying some of it at least. But before he gets fired, he's thinking maybe if I do this, someone's going to let me lodge with them out of gratitude for this discounted partial debt. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, "How much do you owe my master?" And he said, "A hundred measures of oil." And the steward said to him, "Take your bill, sit down quickly, and write fifty. Quickly, 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 hurry, write it. One hundred gets written to fifty. That's a fifty percent reduction in debt for the debtor. Wow! In our time, that would be eight hundred gallons of oil. And he's saying, 'Let's write the books. Let's cook the books and say you only have four hundred gallons.' Ooh, that's a that. Ooh, the debtor's like, 'All right, quick, 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 write it. What's that mean?'" That means less export tax for the landowner. He's only going to pay export tax on 400 gallons of oil instead of 800 gallons of oil to Rome. Hmm. Then he said to another, "How much do you owe?" And he said, "Well, I owe 100 measures of wheat." And he said, "Take your bill and write 80." Oh, in our measurements, that's 1,000 bushels of wheat. He says, "Make it down to 800 bushels of wheat." That's a 20% reduction of debt for the farmer. Less export tax for the landowner as well. The master's going to be happy. The debtor's going to be happy. Wheat also had a high tariff, not as high as olive oil because the trees are worth more than the land. But he's going to take a loss of personal commission, but he's going to make money and he's going to make friends. He's going to win over the landowner, his master, and he's going to win over the small farmer who's in debt. So it's a win-win-win. Because he's ingratiating people to himself, they owe him something now. They're going to take him in when he gets fired. The master's going to be happy. The debtors are going to be happy. Everybody loves him. He's going to have a lot of friends. Less income on the books for the master. Less export taxes for the master. By cutting the middleman steward's commission out of the equation, the master actually will come out ahead financially. The small farmer will come out ahead financially. It's a win-win-win. Who's going to lose? Only the Roman government. Yeah. <laughs> The only loser is the oppressive Roman government, who we hate anyway. The steward has been dishonest with the Roman government. Well, they're dishonest with us. You know what they're doing? They're oppressing our people. They're making us pay taxes. They're not, they don't care about the Roman government. The master commended the dishonest steward for his prudence. Prudence, by dictionary, is a skill and good judgment in the use of resources. For instance, when you sit down to write a check. You may be prudent to check your bank balance to make sure you have enough in your account to cover the check. Prudence, by definition, is a caution or circumspection to danger or risk. It would be very prudent for your son to know how deep the water is when he jumps off the cliff. That's prudence. Prudence is the shrewdness in the management of affairs. Like Nina is prudent with her finances. That's a major factor in her success as a small businesswoman. It's prudent. That was part one of the Gospel of Luke, chapter sixteen, 
on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible Studies, visit SeekingTruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.